This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Teach for America, or TFA as it is commonly called, was founded in 1990 by Wendy Kopp, who conceived of the idea when she was a student at Princeton University. Kopp noticed that many talented young people interested in education and interested in teaching were attending colleges and universities that did not have an undergraduate certification program and therefore were not entering the teaching profession. So she thought, well, we should provide an alternative route for these talented people. Uh, they could learn the fundamentals of teaching in the summer before they entered the classroom and build upon their experiences by keeping in contact with TFA as they were teaching. But our TFA teachers, however bright and committed as many of them obviously are, they may not be as effective in the classroom as a regularly certified teacher who has taken 30 education credits, which most states require for a teacher's license. Research on this question has taken a look at this question and come up with a variety of answers, but a lot of this uh, research was done quite some years ago, shortly after TFA was originally founded. Now we have a just-released study by Virginia Lovison, a postdoctoral research associate at the Annenberg Institute for School Reform at Brown University. She has looked at the rate of improvement in the first five years of teaching by TFA teachers who are teaching in New York City. She compares them to other teachers placed in similar situations, and she finds good reasons to keep Teach for America in operation. I'm pleased to have Virginia Lovison with me today on the Education Exchange. So thank you, Virginia, for joining me. Thanks, Paul. It's wonderful to be here. Well, Virginia, your research is fascinating, but before we dig into it, uh, can you tell me a little bit, our listeners actually, uh, a little bit about Teach for America? I've, I've, I've known about it myself, but I think our listeners would like to know a little bit more about uh, TFA. Uh, what's the... What's the history of the organization, more or less? Absolutely. So TFA, as you highlighted in your introduction, was a program um, that began about 30 years ago by Wendy Kopp. And the goal of the program was fundamentally about filling teacher vacancies um, in hard-to-staff schools. So to sort of set the stage for us today for both this paper and for TFA, um, more broadly, we know that teacher labor markets are, are highly localized, and so too are teacher shortages and teacher vacancies. And we tend to see persistent vacancies concentrated in specific schools and in specific teaching positions. And this problem is what sort of TFA was designed to address. So, the idea so when you say specific locations and mm -hmm. specific problem, what, what's what what what? what can you tell us what, what exactly that is? Is it inner yep. city schools? Is it schools where disadvantaged children are highly concentrated? What, what's exactly uh, the kind of situation you're referring to here? Yep, you're, you have the right idea in mind. So we're thinking about schools that are situated in communities experiencing high rates of poverty. So these are both urban and rural schools and we have them all over the country. So TFA um, currently is working in about 50 different districts. And so I mentioned 
Um, these hard to staff positions are, are specific to certain locales and also certain teaching positions themselves. So we tend to see more persistent vacancies for things like um, high school math and science, special education and things like that. We tend to see fewer uh, vacancies for positions like a, a general ed uh, elementary education teacher. So often TFA teachers are teaching science and math in high school or teaching special education classes or uh, courses like that. Or foreign languages, um, in, uh, teaching courses designed for English language learners, things like that. Um, there are also certainly general education teachers among um, the TFA workforce, um, but I think there's a certain focus um, certainly on, on TFA teachers who they can recruit to fill these so-called hard to staff teaching positions. And there are they, and you say they're often in central cities and rural areas. How about the suburbs? Do the suburbs uh, attract many TFA teachers? Certainly not relative to the urban and rural locales. Um, we tend to see the way communities are organized in the US that suburban communities tend to have higher resources. So these schools wouldn't necessarily be a target for the TFA program. I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule though. So in your case, you looked at uh, Teach for America teachers in New York City. So why did you look at New York City? Well, as a, as a researcher, we tend to get excited sometimes about large sample sizes. So there's two things that I have working for me in this paper. Um, one is that New York City schools are is the largest public school district in the country. And then two, you know, I wasn't necessarily approaching this paper with a specific focus on TFA, but rather more broadly about alternative pathways into teaching more generally and sort of what effects these have. Um, on students over the long run. So um, I should mention that TFA is one of the largest of those uh, alternative teacher preparation programs. So it's sort of a double whammy here, right? I got a large um, alternative teacher prep program in the largest school district in the country. So there are other pathways. How, how large is TFA uh, relative to all the number, you know, all new teachers coming in on any given year? Uh, mm -hmm. How many are there and how many of those are TFA teachers? Do you have any sense of what that is? Yeah, I should have the number of new teachers per year at the top of my mind, and I don't. But what I can tell you is that there are currently about 25,000 TFA teachers in total working in U.S. public schools. Um, and to put that in comparison, there's 3 million teachers and um, the U.S. teacher workforce. So TFA represents, you know, a very small fraction of the overall teacher workforce, um, but they nevertheless play a key role, again, in addressing these so-called hard-to-staff teaching positions in very specific locations and school districts across the country. And they sort of uh, emphasize the potential for alternative certification. So do you know how many other ways of becoming certified through some alternative path to the traditional take your uh, education courses in college and, and, and then uh, uh, take the, the test or, or fulfill the other uh, licensing requirements before you begin teaching? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to plug myself to see if maybe you'll have me back on the podcast in, a, in the future, but I'm currently working with um, the state of Mississippi on exactly what you're 
what you're calling here an alternative pathways into the uh, into the teaching profession. Um, so TFA and programs like TFA, for instance, the new teacher project um, and others like it are sort of one pathway in. Um, another um, sort of pathway into the profession or what we're calling these sort of grow your own um, teacher certification programs, looking to identify existing talent within school systems and sort of identifying who looks like a promising candidate, not by these historical measures of have you taken classes A, B, and C, and did you score above a threshold on a standardized exam, but what are we seeing of your performance once you're in the classroom filling some sort of supplementary or complementary role in schools? And does that give us evidence? Does that make us excited, right, about extending a license to you. Um, again, in these schools where we're facing issues uh, of teacher supply. Um, so what we're seeing right now all over the country, right, are lots of different creative ideas about how can we um, fill high needs classrooms. TFA is one option, grow your own programs or others. Um, there's, there's a lot of different sort of moving pieces here. Well, uh, Virginia, that's all fascinating, but let's turn to your study. So your study looked at TFA in New York City for the years 2012 to 2019. And I think what's really important about the dates there is that's very recent. I mean, it brings us up to the moment COVID hits the land, but mm -hmm. uh, so it's not, you know, like yesterday, but it's still quite recent because uh, a lot of the studies of TFA are back in the 1990s when TFA was first uh, begun. So um, how, how do you think TFA has changed since that earlier period to the period when your study begins? It's a great question. So we've seen what I would call a fairly massive evolution in the TFA program and the types of individuals they look to recruit. So when TFA was founded, um, sort of a fair characteristic or uh, characterization of the TFA program is that they wanted individuals um, from elite universities, as you've said, you know, who might not have considered teaching before, but are willing to sort of give it a go for two years as an act of national service, uh, much like the Peace Corps. Um, and now what we're seeing is TFA has, has evolved, right, in their organizational approach, where they're seeing the limitations of recruiting exclusively elite individuals and placing them um, in schools that are anything but, right? There's a severe contrast there. Um, and I think now what we see TFA doing is seeing enormous value and enormous enormous potential um, and individuals who share that same common commitment to improving schools and giving back to their communities, but also see themselves and the students that they're working with. So we no longer see necessarily that the TFA teacher workforce is predominantly white. We no longer see that the TFA teacher workforce is predominantly pulling from Ivy League institutions. There's been a huge shift in that regard um, and in my view, an appropriate one. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, uh, change and in, in development uh, within the TFA organization. But a rookie teacher is a rookie teacher. And so on the first year that anybody arrives in a, in a challenging situation, which uh, TFA teachers usually find themselves, um, are, are they as good as a teacher that comes from a, a certified training program? 
So there's been many wonderful studies before mine that have addressed this very question that you bring up, which I think was sort of first and foremost in people's minds when TFA became a larger and larger player on the education scene. You know, we wanted to know compared to who else uh, could be teaching these kids, how are TFA teachers doing? And that research overwhelmingly suggests that TFA teachers are doing as well as we would expect them to. Um, and there are well, as well as they we would expect them to. How well is that? You mean as well as mm -hmm. as good as another teacher, but no better? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So what you see commonly is it comes down to the subject, right? We see um, on average, TFA teachers do about the same or sometimes better um, than their counterpart. And we can get into who that counterpart is. Who is the counterpart? Uh, who are you comparing them to? Mm -hmm. Excellent. So each of the studies on TFA defines this slightly differently. So we have some studies where within a given school, um, researchers will randomize whether the students are taught by a TFA teacher or basically whoever else that school has hired to fill a comparable teaching position. So the best comparisons that we're looking at um, are sort of the other individuals in the exact same schools working with the, you know, if not the exact same kids, they're you know, a similar demographic. Well, there's nothing better than random assignments. So <laughs> that would be a very, so what do those studies show? Do they show that the TFA teacher is as good as or or better than the other, the, a, what would happen otherwise? That's exactly right. We either, especially in math, we either see that TFA teachers are performing similarly to other teachers in the school, and in some cases are performing um, significantly better. Now, uh, you're looking at something a little different as I read your paper. You're looking at, uh, do they become better teachers more quickly or do they improve at a faster rate than other teachers? Do I have that right? You do have that right. So one of the key ideas behind this paper was, again, building on this excellent scholarship we already have telling us how TFA teachers are faring in the classroom in their first two years. Now, keep in mind, TFA is a two-year program. So teachers have the choice at the end of that to decide, you know what, that was it for me. I'm gonna pursue some other avenue or they can choose to keep teaching. And in recent years, what we've seen is uh, more and more TFA teachers are deciding that they wanna become career teachers, or they're at least, I can say empirically staying in the classroom, I can see in my data for three, four or five years and beyond. And so one of the original ideas for this paper was, hey, we've got data from New York City, we have enough of these teachers who are now choosing to teach for three years or more. How are they doing after they finish from the TFA program, become alumni and carry on with their careers? Um, I really didn't know which way it was going to go here because there could be sort of one hypothesis that the best of the best TFA teachers have really attractive outside options and sort of go on to go do something else career wise after their two years. In which case we might see that, you know, the longer run trajectories of TFA teachers might not look favorable compared to other teachers who have decided to make this a profession because we'd sort of be losing the cream of the crop. Another you know, plausible alternative is that if you're a teacher who started with TFA and you 
decide to stick with it for longer, it's because you've identified, you know, a true passion of yours. This is something that you want to do for the rest of your life. And you could imagine teachers getting better and better. Now, before you ask, I can't say with defend, like definitively, right? I can't interrogate, like, why did teachers stay? It's like, it's because they're talented or because they didn't have any better upside action. Like, I don't know from looking at the data, but what I can tell you is among those teachers who are making the choice to stay for three years and more, how they're doing. And that's one of the contributions of this paper. So when you say how well are they doing, you're always mm -hmm. comparing them to somebody else. So in your study, what's your comparison group of teachers? So this is a great question. So when we're looking at returns to experience is the jargony phrase um, that I will you know, try to unpack a little bit. I'm actually comparing how a teacher performs and improves over time relative to their own past trajectory. So Paul, if I were gonna estimate your returns to experience as a teacher, I'd say, okay, um, what contribution did Paul make to his kids' test scores in two years and, uh, and his second year in the classroom? What contribution did Paul make to his kids' uh, test scores in year one in the classroom and what's the difference? And then I'm gonna average that across every other single teacher who also was in the classroom for a year one and a year two. So in that sense, you are your own comparison group. Um, what's interesting about this study though is- That is how well I'm doing relative to all other teachers, right? So after sort of that initial question of what does your own individual trajectory look like? What yeah. I'm gonna end up doing is averaging those individual trajectories for TFA teachers, and then I'm going to average those individual trajectories for non-TFA teachers, and then I'm going to take the difference. Are they the non-TFA teachers in the same school or non-TFA teachers anywhere in New York City or, or exactly where are those teachers teaching? Yep. So you empirically, we can look at this both ways, right? I can compare the trajectory of TFA teachers basically to the average trajectory of um all teachers working in similar grades and subjects in New York City. Um, and I can also make uh, an even more narrow comparison, looking only at teachers in the exact same schools, grades, and subjects. Now, what's interesting is sort of no matter which way I roll the dice here, I'm still seeing TFA teacher performance looking exceptionally strong, where the teachers are improving at double the rate of uh, the comparison group, no matter how I define it. Whether so it I'm doesn't make too much difference what your comparison group is. You're always finding the TFA teachers improving at uh, twice the rate as other teachers. That's what I see in the data from New York City. That's correct. So um, I, I, I guess that's that tells me quite a bit. Can can I ask you? Can we translate that into student learning? How much more will a student learn six months, a year, or, or whatever? Do you have any kind of way of interpreting how much difference that can make to a student? Yeah, so I, I can do this for you, but I'm going to start with the limitations so we don't get too hung up on the particular number. And so a common way we can sort of translate these standard deviation effects as I present in the paper two days, weeks, months of learning is to ask ourselves, how much do we expect a child to learn over the course of a year? So 
uh, you know, for second graders in math, we might say like, okay, over the course of a full year, I expect this student to improve by one standard deviation. What I see in the data for the average teacher, right, is that they improve over the first five years at a rate of about um, 0.05 of these student standard deviations. So you could say that's about like 120th of a standard deviation, 120th of the school year is, I don't know, maybe about 10 days of learning. But you can see all the many assumptions I just laid out for you to, to get to that number. So, well, yes, and that was second grade where kids learn a lot. If you get to say fifth grade, the rate of, of learning is slowed quite a bit. So, you that mm -hmm. that actually would be more than the 10 days. I'd say it's probably, you know, more like a month or two. So that's uh, at the typical rate of learning in a fifth grade student. And your is your data for second graders or is it for older children? Great question. So I have in the sample uh, fourth grade through eighth grade students. And so um, to give you my like best estimate, right, I could say I could give you a number of about 20 days of learning. But I'm going to caveat that by emphasizing that the exact sort of translation is going to look different if we want to be precise about it for fourth graders, fifth graders, sixth graders, and it's going to look different for math and English. So this is very much uh, a ballpark. Right. But you're sort of saying it's non-trivial. It's a significant difference. And in any case, you're basically saying um, there's no price to be paid for hiring a teach for America. And there's every reason to think there's a lot of benefits uh, uh, from it, except for one thing, and that is TFA teachers do leave more quickly than other teachers, and that means bringing in another rookie teacher. So any gains you're getting from TFA, aren't they offset by the fact that you have to replace them so quickly? So that question that you raise is exactly what I uh, look to explore in this paper. And so I will say there are many sort of pros and cons of hiring TFA teachers, um, but two of the big ones that we think about often are one, you know, contribution to students learning, um, which we typically measure with uh, standardized exams, and then the second is turnover. And so you brought up this fundamental tension of like, okay, if TFA teachers are performing well in the classroom, that's wonderful, but I'm having to replace them every year. And then the first year teachers, you know, maybe aren't quite as good as the second year teachers. So how does this all work out in equilibrium? Um, and that very question is sort of what I answer in this research paper. So what's your answer? So I'll step out and sort of give you sort of a bird's eye view of how I approach it. Um, my answer first, though, is that it does appear to be worth it. But but let me tell you how I go about answering this question so you can tell me if uh, if my logic sits well with you. So my thoughts are that we have um, TFA teachers, first year TFA teachers, second year TFA teachers, and then this alumni group, again, which is sort of the key group that I'm looking at that hasn't received as much attention in the literature to date. And so if we want to know an equilibrium, what's the effect of TFA hiring? We sort of need to know in any given year, you know, how many of my TFA teacher workforce are in their first year and their second year. Then, then also, how many alumni teachers do I have? How many all-stars do I have that are now fifth year, sixth year teachers, and so on? And so what I do in this paper is I estimate, okay, if you're a TFA teacher in your first year experience, I expect you to contribute, you know, this much to your students' test score performance. 
And I layer on top of that though, like what fraction of the overall TFA workforce do I expect will be in their first year in equilibrium? And so I'm accounting for the fact that TFA teachers at different experience levels are contributing to student learning at different rates. And I'm accounting for sort of the fraction of the TFA workforce that's in each one of those experience buckets. So if I get you right, I, you're sort of telling me that in order to really figure out whether you're losing that much by the rapid turnover rate, you've got to look at those teachers that have been around for four and five years and are having a very big impact and sort of saying, okay, how many of them are still around as compared to how many are brand new teachers and and all the fill-in pieces in between. And when you do all of that, you find, as I think from reading your paper, that actually there's still a positive effect for TFA. Yes, it's true they turn over more quickly, but because they become increasingly effective over a long period of time, that's even more of that offsets all of that turnover rate that you're getting with some of the uh, second year teachers. That's exactly right, Paul. What we see over the long run is that the net effect of TFA hiring is positive. And we maintain that conclusion, accounting for the fact that we are losing TFA teachers each year and they're continually being replaced by a new crop of brand new teachers. So does this apply in the contemporary situation where we have a teacher shortage out there and uh, on the one hand, you might say, well, we need to recruit teachers from all possible sources. So clearly we need TFA teachers if there's a teacher shortage. On the other hand, it may be especially challenging to uh, get a good replacement teacher when, uh, when somebody drops uh, the ball and heads off to a, a different uh, kind of job. So I'm glad you asked this because sort of the simulation exercise that we just walked through assumes that there is always going to be a first-year TFA teacher to fill in the gaps when a school experiences turnover. And so if we were to find ourselves in a place where TFA did start to uh, face um, recruitment challenges, where it was no longer true that a principal or a district leader could count on those replacement teachers to be filling in the holes, then sort of this logic would fall apart. And so I think that's a, an important thing to understand about how sort of the estimation of these equilibrium effects work. I would not come to the same conclusion if we were in sort of a state of the world where um, an exiting TFA teacher was unable for whatever reason to be replaced by a new TFA teacher. So we're really relying strongly on TFA's ability to recruit year in and year out to provide sort of a steady crop of teachers. Well, another, and this sort of is uh, the question raised by your research program in general, you're looking at all these alternative ways and pathways of coming into education. What do you think of dropping the certification requirement altogether, the licensing requirement, and, and just simply letting principals and school districts recruit the best people they can find regardless of certification? Is, is it, could this actually enhance the quality of, of our teaching force? It's a question that I certainly think about a lot. And so 
where I'll start from is sort of a first order question you might have is what's the relationship right between teachers who do really well on these certification exams and their actual performance in the classroom and the answer is that it's fairly weak right it doesn't we can't necessarily conclude that a teacher who knocks it out of the park on their praxis which is one of the common teacher licensing exams is necessarily going to be an effective teacher and so that I think in and of itself at least raises the question right what would the consequences be of removing these licensure requirements and we're at an interesting point here because many states um, as a result of the pandemic temporarily suspended these licensing requirements so that they wouldn't have these severe supply issues of teachers who frankly couldn't show up to take their test right because of um, pandemic restrictions. And so I think I'm really excited to see sort of um, research over the next few years, and including hopefully some of my own, that answers this question, well, what happens when we, you know, welcome individuals into the workforce to start teaching who haven't sort of gone through these traditional channels of um, pathways? And so I think, you know, like anything in education research, we'll probably see some some, you know, local examples where things went disastrously. And maybe in those cases, the certification exams really did do a good job identifying talent. But I, I'm confident as well that we're going to see um, states who've done a really good job of looking at other sort of predictors of teacher performance. Um, and, and I'm hopeful, right, identifying recruits that might have been traditionally excluded from the teacher workforce that now have a pathway. Um, into teaching that can help um, address some of these, you know, shortages that we're experiencing, um, you know, and also ultimately have access to, you know, a profession that they they very much want to be working in and have only been excluded on the basis of, you know, struggling to pass these exams. And I'll go on the record and say, you know, when I was a teacher, I had to take one of the, these practice exams to teach high school Spanish and, and I failed, you know, like some of these are quite hard. Um, and, you know, I'll be the first one to say it. And I think, I hope at least, you know, I had a positive impact on my students in the time that I was in the classroom. So well, I'm sure you did. You know, one <laughs> of the things in my research uh, years ago, uh, we looked at all the different uh, universities in the state of Florida. Some of them are very elite universities and some of them are, are, are at the other end of the tail. And we looked at, okay, does it make any difference which training program you went to? And we couldn't tell that it made any difference at all. You were mm -hmm. about the same quality teacher on average, no matter where you got your training program, which might suggest that those training programs have less of an effect on your on your teaching ability than uh, than is often assumed. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And I'd also like to highlight some of Dan Goldhaber's work. Um, he has a paper that looks that considers sort of other factors that might predict your success in the classroom. And he's actually able to show that um, race match sort of trumps, right, whatever positive effect you might have from having a, a strong praxis or a strong um, certification score and shows that Black students assigned with Black teachers who scored lower on these exams are still learning more and progressing more in the classroom than they are when they're paired with a white teacher who scored really well on these certification exams. So at minimum, I think we need to sort of broaden how we're thinking about what factors uh, matter in the classroom, which, which predictors of performance we're privileging, right, when we're enforcing these exams and understanding sort of what alternatives we have to both 
maintain a certain level of rigor for kids, right? So the idea or the purported reason behind the exams, right, is to make sure that every student is taught by a qualified teacher. But I just think we need to like more carefully examine what criteria we're using to determine who's qualified and who's not, and sort of what the wider repercussions of are for those choices. Yes, I don't think we want to go back to segregation and have black pupils have only black teachers, but at the same time, we have a very uh, low percentage of minority uh, teachers in the teaching profession today. So this is definitely an area where we could be broadening our, our efforts. So I thank you very much, uh, Virginia, for uh, joining me on the Education Exchange. Your study is really quite fascinating and raises a lot of very important questions. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Virginia Lovison, postdoctoral research associate at the Annenberg Institute for School Reform at Brown University, who has written a just released study of the effects of TFA teachers on student achievement. It's available at the Annenberg website at Brown University. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.